<clears throat> that's a really good section. So, all right, Luke 17. Let's read the text and then we'll pray. And then we will jump in here. Make sure I have this right. So it can tell me what my time is. Not like I'll pay attention to it, but it's there. <sighs> okay. All right, Luke 17, beginning in verse 1. We'll read and then we'll pray. And then we'll um, talk about it. It's really broken into three sections here, so talk about each section here. Uh, Luke 17, verse 1. Then he said to the disciples, it is, it is impossible that no offenses should come. But woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. <laughs> so the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, Say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now, now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices, <clears throat> they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Then he saw when he saw them, so when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice glorified God, and fell down on his face at his feet, giving giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is, is within you. And he said to the disciples, 
The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Don't go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken, and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken, and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Well, alrighty then. So let's pray. <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? Let's find out. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we pray because it is uh, you that we need. It's you that we desire to meet with and to, to dwell with, Lord. Thank you uh, for being with us, whether or not we are aware of your presence. Thank you for the truth that you sent Jesus, who was called Emmanuel, God with us. Sometimes things feel very lonely. But you are with us. And truly your rod and your staff bring comfort to us, Lord. You provide all that we need. And we would do well to remember and to give you thanks. Lord, in this season of the world's history, anchor us in the truth of your word. Anchor us in yourself, Lord, that we would not be like the world around us, tossed around. Let us rest in the unchanging truths of your immutable, unchanging word. Because you, Lord, are the same yesterday, today, and forever the only thrice holy God. You really are holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And this morning we praise you and we give you thanks and we give you glory and honor. And we throw ourselves upon you once more, Lord. <laughs> you are our rest.
and it is in nothing else. And we seem to be being reminded of that moment by moment these days. So we thank you. Lord, give us rest in yourself, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. Luke chapter 17. Uh, Jesus, the last uh, section there ends with the story of the rich man and Lazarus and Jesus saying, neither will, will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Jesus was saying in that uh, story, in that illustration there, that um, the people had Moses and they had the prophets and they could hear them. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, of course, the rich man was saying, no, 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 if somebody goes back from the dead, they'll believe, they'll believe then if somebody's raised from the dead. Of course, it's not what happens because if you didn't see it, then everybody says, well, were they really raised from the dead? Right, which is what everybody's saying now. Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead. You know, that's just uh, a concocted story uh, that um, um, you know, was made up in order to try and persuade people. You know, anyhow, um, continuing though in verse in chapter seventeen, in verse one, um, this is what happens. Then he said to the disciples, "This is what Luke records for us." Now he, he begins to speak to the disciples, and he said, "It's impossible that no offenses should come." And I want to make sure we understand what this word "offenses" is talking about, because Jesus frequently offended the religious leaders, okay? And he did so sometimes poignantly. He did so on purpose at times, right? Where he would, he would wait for a particular thing to happen so that he could offend their, uh, how, I don't know how else to say it, other than to say maybe the idea is to offend their religious sensibilities, right? They had traditions that they had developed that they believed were godly right traditions, uh, but they were not things that God had commanded, uh, they were traditions that they had they had kept, and over time, what this produced in them was pride. It was arrogance because they felt, if I keep all of these rules and you don't, I'm better than you. And the reason why bad things happen to you, and the reason why you're poor, and the reason why X Y Z happened to you, is because you don't keep all of these traditions that I keep. And the reason why I'm rich, and the reason why I am am healthy, and the reason why bad things aren't happening to me, which is itself probably an illusion. Um, um, we frequently use availability heuristics when we evaluate our own lives because there are certain things we remember and we like to forget the bad things very easily and quickly, um, <clears throat> depending on our mental state. Um, but regardless, that sort of mentality produces pride and, and arrogance, or at least it reveals the pride and arrogance that is itself bound in our hearts. Okay. Um, now, Jesus frequently offended them, and sometimes he did so on purpose. So the warning here is not simply, uh, I think it's important that we distinguish between a, the idea of just being offensive for offensive, offense sake and the idea of tripping someone up to catch them. or to The, the idea of the word here, actually, the word that's used for, here for offense is because uh, there are a couple of words in the New Testament translated for offense. And this particular one is a word that's only used a few times, and it is the, the root word for the word scandalize, uh, actually, in, in English, uh, when we bring it directly from the Greek. Um, but the idea is to set a trap for someone, to cause someone to be caught in a trap, to trip them up. Do you get the idea there? So the warning here that Jesus gives is um, that the reality is it is impossible that there will be no offenses, but woe to him through whom they do come. Right? You live in a world that's a mess, and Jesus is fully aware of that, right? 
There are going to be things that trip you up and trip other people up. But watch out. Later on, he's going to say, take heed to yourselves. His teaching here is to the disciples that they, as they are following him and walking in the way of Jesus, need to be aware of the idea that they have the ability to trip up other people, especially these little ones, as Jesus calls them, right? They have the ability to trip them up, to cause them to fall into sin, and they ought to be aware of it and watch out. So it's impossible that no offenses should come. True, but woe to him through whom they do come. This is not Jesus. Clearly, this is not Jesus saying, hey, it's impossible that that we'll never offend or trip up anybody. So don't worry about it, bro. No, 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 no. He's saying, be mindful of that reality. You have the ability to affect other people's lives. By the way, I think this is this is literally what Paul lays out all of Romans chapter 14 about. And this is why we're going to read Romans 14 in just a second here, because it's literally what the whole chapter is about, about not causing offense, not causing people to stumble uh, in the way that we use our liberties as followers of Jesus. So um, verse two, woe to him, as we read, woe to him through whom they do come. Verse two, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. You wonder where the mafia got that idea. Uh, (laughs) swimming with the fishes, right? Jesus said it would be better for a millstone. Imagine this great rounded stone a lot of times on like, if you imagine like a center piece and you have a a cross beam coming off from that center piece and you have a stone that is uh, sort of going through that that center beam. And then as you hold the beam and walk around it, that, that millstone that's really heavy will crush whatever it is that's in the path of it right there, right? So that's frequently how these, uh, these setups were. And these were heavy stones because they were designed for uh, crushing things, whether it was like an olive press. You could do an olive press like that where you would crush the olives so the oil would come out. Uh, Or um, whether you use this particular millstone for some other type of thing. The whole point here is that it was strong enough to, heavy enough to crush whatever it is you were putting under it so that you could use, uh, get the good stuff out, whatever it is you were after, right? So it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. So, and here's the reason why I bring it up. If Jesus was telling us that we should never cause offense or never say something that somebody else views as offensive, then he wouldn't have said this. I mean, listen to what he's saying. It would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. That's offensive, right? It would be better for you to be dead. Right? That's because that's what would happen to you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown in the sea, you drown. It would be better for you to die than that you should offend one of these little ones. Than that he should offend one of these little ones. Right? Same thing, same word, offend there, to cause one of these little ones to stumble, to trip them up, to set a trap for them, a snare. Right? The way that we use our liberty as followers of Jesus can either be for the benefit of others esteeming others better than ourselves, right? Do nothing out of selfish ambition, right? Or vain conceit, but in lowliness of mind, in humility, um, value others above yourselves, right? That um, great teaching of Paul's. Of course, following in the simplicity of Jesus' teaching, saying that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We can use our liberty either for the advantage and benefit of others, or we can use it for our own benefit at the expense of others. Um, and uh, the reality is that certainly there are gray areas that are in between one or or both of those things, rather. Um, um, but we ought to be aware and thinking of it and thinking, uh, considering others. 
this is a lesson I've been trying really hard to um, teach my kids uh, as they're growing up to not just think about, and I say, I try to, to tell them, listen, I don't want you to only think about what you want and then and then do whatever it is that you have to do or you feel like you have to do in order to get the thing that you want. You already love yourself. That's why you're trying to do that. So instead, think about what your brother needs. Think about what your sister needs, what's good for them, and help them get that. Use your strength. Use whatever it is, whatever resources you have at your disposal to help them get the thing that they want, right? Esteem or, or the thing that they need, right? Esteem others better than yourselves. Um, take heed to yourselves. This is what verse 3 says. It would be better, as we read in verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Now, uh, again, as with most of the scriptures, this is not a place where we take the writings and we then try and attack everyone else about what their problems are. Jesus takes his teaching and he says, you take heed to yourself. Deal with you. Take heed to yourselves. Now, here's... I would say, the flip side, the other side of the coin. It's impossible that offenses should come. And you know what that means? People are going to sin against you. People are going to hurt you. They're going to trip you up. Sometimes people are going to do things, and you're going to be confused by it. So Jesus continues, (laughs) take heed to yourselves that you don't cause offense. Also, here's sort of the other side of that same coin. If your brother sins against you, what do I do? Right? If somebody offends you, if somebody sins against you, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. This isn't something we do a lot of these days. (laughs) The idea here is address it, right? Tell them. When you did this, you sinned against me. Rebuke him. Uh, Sometimes when we hear a word like rebuke, sometimes I think we have this, at least I did, I had this like imaginary like, it's some huge, grandiose, how, blah, blah, blah. Like, it doesn't mean explode at anybody. <laughs> it doesn't mean be a jerk to people. It means go to your brother or sister in love and say, when you did this, it hurt. Rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, verse 4 says, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. I know that sort of flies in the face of some of our um, ideas that say if somebody sins against you or somebody does something wrong to you repeatedly and they ask for forgiveness and they don't really want it because they're doing the same thing and they're not changing, you really should change. (sighs) Theoretical life is so much easier than real life, isn't it? Our theories and philosophies of how we can live and treat each other. When we say things like, if somebody doesn't like... You know, if somebody is a burden on you, then just cut them out of your life or whatever. Like you realize if everybody thought that way, you'd be in no one's life because like you're all, at some point you're a burden in people's lives. <laughs> just the reality of, of humanity is that we hurt each other. We sin against each other because we were, we were born in sin. <clears throat> so um, as we read, Verse 4 says, if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. I want to pause right here just for a sec and mention this. There are some people that suggest that as a follower of Jesus, you only forgive people when they come and repent. I think that's garbage. I just think that's trash, personally. I I don't think there is any real grounds for that idea. Um, 
obviously that's helpful to your relationship with that person, right? If they're willing to acknowledge their sin, to repent, to change their mind, right? Obviously that's incredibly helpful for your relationship. Um, but uh, putting all of the emphasis or the onus only on the person who has sinned against you, I think is um, not something that is necessary. That is, we have the ability to go to people who sin against us. We can also be directive and restorative in our relationships. We can pursue that kind of restoration in our relationships, right? By saying, I, I, I forgive you or I want to forgive you. This thing that you did, it hurt me. Keep in mind that this is dealing with personal sin against you. Keep that in mind, right? <clears throat> when somebody sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And there's uh, another place in the in the Gospels where um, they ask how many times they should forgive, up to seven times, and Jesus says, and this may be why uh, Peter first suggested that, up to seven times. Could be because of this teaching where Jesus said, forgive them seven times. Even if they come in the same day and they do something to you seven times, you know, and they come in seven times, say, I repent. Wouldn't that get annoying? Wouldn't that get old? Somebody like does the same thing to you over and over and over again? It's almost like having children. <laughs> forgive them, right? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe like having parents, you know. Seven times in a day they return to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive them. The idea here, as it is carried throughout the rest of the scriptures, is that as much, here's what Paul says, as much as is possible with you, be at peace with all men. Do everything in your power to reconcile all of the relationships that you possibly can. Don't let things Loom. Don't let them hang because they, they breed bitterness. And the root of bitterness springs up and defiles many people as it goes on and on without being addressed. When somebody's name is mentioned and your first thought, your first feeling is a hot face and one of anger or frustration, you know there's something that needs to be dealt with. Okay? There's forgiveness that needs to happen there. And sometimes that's hard. No one, no one, certainly not me or anyone else, would doubt the reality of the difficulty of forgiveness. Some of the things that have been done to us by others are incredibly painful. But as much as is possible with you, be at peace with all men. <laughs> okay? As much as is possible with you, be at peace with all men. Because sometimes you can't. Sometimes you'll have sinned against someone and they will really struggle with it and they won't be able to forgive you. But you can pursue it. You can repent. Sometimes um, sometimes people have sinned against you and you forgive them and you want to go to them to restore or reconcile your relationship, but they won't admit that they've done wrong. And that's hard. And that hurts sometimes even more, right? If somebody has hurt you or sinned against you and they won't even admit it when you've said what you did hurt me. And they'll say, oh, just, oh, you, it shouldn't be that big a deal to you. Listen, it's not up to you how much something hurts me. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> if he sins against you in a, seven times in a day, seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, I love their response to this teaching about forgiveness. Increase our faith. <laughs> Right? <laughs> Jesus is like, listen, if somebody comes and sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes and repents, you forgive them. That's his command. 
right? And their response is, uh, Lord, give us more faith because <laughs> that's real hard, <laughs> right? I love that. It's so honest, right? Like, that's so true. Like, Lord, help us to trust you more because that's really difficult, right? So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. I don't really like this teaching too much. So, so <laughs> if you have faith, all it means is that I've got very, very little faith. Right? If you have faith as a mustard seed, which is one of the smallest, the tiniest little seeds uh, that they use, particularly in, in their uh, agricultural industry in Israel. If you have faith as a tiny, tiny little mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. I think, if nothing else, one of the lessons that I have always pulled from this is that the reality is it's not about the size of our faith so much as it is about the exercise of our faith. And I know that's a real preachy phrase, but I've thought about it for years. So (laughs) it's not so much about the size of our faith. If you even have faith the size of a mustard seed, this tiny little seed, but it's about using the faith that you have by exercising it. Because the reality is faith is trust in God. The faith that we have is faith in God. It's trusting him. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I've eaten and drunk? And afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded? I don't really like this teaching here. I'm just, <laughs> I mean, I do, but I don't. I, I do because it's right, but I don't because it grates against my flesh and my pride. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Does he thank his servant because he did the things that were required of his job? Well, no, he just did his job. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. This has a lot to do with with introspection, a lot to do with our inward attitude about ourselves. Jesus' command to forgive is in fact a command that you and I are to be forgivers. And when we have done so, we needn't go and then boast and say, look at how great I am. This person sinned so much against me, but I'm just so great. Look at what, oh, I'm just the best. I've released them from this burden that they owed me. I'm so grand. Jesus is like, no, no, no. When you forgive, you just done what was commanded of you. Your attitude about yourself should just be, you know what? I'm just a regular old servant. I just done what was commanded of me. This is to me very reminiscent of Paul's attitude toward preachers in the beginning of First Corinthians, where Paul says that some of the division in the church at Corinth was related to some of them saying, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos, these other teachers, right? Or I'm of Peter. Some of them, they were, they were sort of dividing themselves up based on whatever teacher they preferred, right? Whatever their, their teaching preference was. And Paul's like, guys, is, is the Messiah divided? Like, what are you, what are you doing? He's like, we are, we are nothing. <laughs> One person plants and another person waters, but it's God who gives life. It's God who gives the increase, Right? 
So then Paul says, this is his word to preachers, to announcers, to teachers and pastors and others in Christian ministry. And you, if you're a parent, or if you ever have said anything to anyone trying to teach them about God's kingdom. (laughs) His word to you and me is, um, so then he who plants is nothing, and he who waters is nothing, but it's God who gives the increase. (laughs) So guess what? Pastors are nothing. The best thing that a a Christian teacher can be is just faithfully communicating what God has said. And there's there's nothing praiseworthy of that, except that it seems that there are many people who won't do that. But I don't give life. It's God who gives life. The best thing that I could do for you or for my children or anyone else, the best thing that you could do for the people around you and for your children It's just to faithfully say what God has said to the best of your ability. And he who plants is nothing. And he who waters is nothing. (laughs) It's God who gives the increase. This is one of the things that frustrates me about, about celebrity Christianity. About celebrity pastorship. Right? We set up these meetings and we want people to come And so to impress them, we find a celebrity, whether it's a celebrity in the secular world who has become a Christian, maybe an athlete or a musician. They they may not have much spiritual depth, but they'll bring people. (laughs) And we we play these weird games, right? Uh, But we do the same thing in churches. I've been a part of of, um, Christian ministry and churches and leadership for, for a long time now, and we do this with our pastor's conferences we want to get a bunch of pastors to come, or a lot of people in, in ministry. And so what do we do? We get the, the people that we think are the best teachers, and we bring them the, the name brand ones. Because <laughs> more people will come to our thing, right? <laughs> it gets more popularity. It's not that, here's the thing that, that I want you to understand. It's not that that pastor, because he has a large visible ministry is saying anything more true than the other person who is also saying God's word, who has a very small ministry. As long as what we're doing is being faithful to God's word, the size of some fellowship or of some other thing is is irrelevant. That's entirely dependent on God, right? Why? Because one plants and another waters, but it's God who gives the increase in the life of people. It's God who does it. The question is only, are you being faithful to say what God has said? That's the thing that matters. I love Jesus' attitude here. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. And I also hate it. (laughs) Because it really grates against my flesh. And I have to say, you know what, Lord? If I've done everything that you've said, then I can't walk around in arrogance and pride. I shouldn't and can't do that kind of thing. I'm just an unprofitable servant. I've just done what was commanded of me. That's all. What, uh, as they said, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now it happened, verse 11 says, now it happened as he went to Jerusalem. Here's the second 
section here. The first section was dealing with offenses. I want to come back to that in just a second. We'll read from uh, Romans 14 here in just a, a minute as we sort of wrap up today. But the next, the second section is this. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him 10 men who were lepers who stood afar off, right? That would be the right thing to do. They have leprosy. They stood far away from him. It was their responsibility, according to Moses, to cover their uh, mustache, their mustachio, and to, to say unclean, unclean. They had handmade masks. Literally, they made them out of their hands. <laughs> right? It's amazing that God understood infectious disease before people understood infectious disease. It's, I mean, it's not amazing, right? But it's just funny. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so uh, they lifted up their voices and they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. I mean, he's just like, listen, you guys, go ahead and go show yourselves to the priest. They're not even healed yet. They're not even cleansed of leprosy. But Jesus just says, go and show yourselves to the priest. But apparently they believed enough, whatever the requirement was, that they believed him. They went. They went to go show themselves to the priest. And as they went, they, they were cleansed. Apparently they believed that they would be healed as they did it. And they were healed. Now, verse 15. One of them... Excuse me. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. It's almost this footnote. The Samaritans, as I mentioned to you before, were considered sort of halflings by uh, many of the Jews particularly Jews living down in the southern part of Israel, in uh, Jerusalem, but also probably some of the Jewish, the more pure families, if we can say it that way, of Jews up in the north in Galilee. But in between was this area of Samaria. Okay, So Samaria, one of the reasons why it was viewed this way was because Samaria is where the central part of the northern kingdom of Israel was located when Israel was split into two separate kingdoms. When um, after Solomon, Solomon's children uh, the kingdom was split in half, and the southern kingdom was the kingdom of Judah, and the northern kingdom was the kingdom of Israel. Israel was carried away into captivity well before the southern kingdom of Judah was. And they were then uh, supplanted or intermarried with the people, their their captors, right? And then some of them came back, and that's why they were considered sort of halflings or half-breeds. But they had also developed a false throne as Israel, as the northern kingdom of Israel. They had a false king and false throne, if I can say false. The reason why I'm saying false is because it was not the throne of David. In Jerusalem, okay, and they also had developed a false religion where they worshipped at Mount Gerizim, okay, which was in Samaria, which is when you get to the story of the woman at the well and she says to Jesus, "We worship on this mountain." That's what she's talking about. She's a Samaritan woman. She's talking about that sort of false religion that had developed over time in the northern kingdom of Israel, because they weren't allowed to go down to Jerusalem because they were at war frequently with uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, So what they did was they developed sort of a replacement. They had a replacement kingdom and a replacement um, worship, okay? And it was at Mount Gerizim there that they did did that. Uh, Mount Gerizim is also uh, important in in another place in Israel's history. It was the place of blessing. When they entered the land, they put uh, some of the people on Mount Gerizim and some of the people, I believe, on Mount Ebal. I think it's the the name of the other mountain. And one pronounced blessing and one pronounced cursing. And and, uh, Mount Gerizim was the one of blessing, okay? Uh, for obedience to the law. Uh, But anyhow, 
It's interesting, again, that it's noted here that this is a Samaritan was the only one who came back. It says specifically that he went as he was going to Jerusalem, that he passed through Samaria and Galilee. Um, we've talked about this on several occasions. It was very strange for Jesus as a traveling rabbi to go through uh, Samaria on any regular basis for sure. Um, because of the relationship that the Jews had with the Samaritans. It was a very contentious relationship, which we see in several places throughout the scriptures. But Jesus frequently uses Samaritans as um, those to demonstrate an illustration. Because there was such animosity toward the Samaritans, as Jesus is, is doing this ministry for the nation of Israel, for the Jews, he frequently brings up these Samaritans. In fact, there's one big story that we're all familiar with called the Good Samaritan, right? Where the Samaritan is the good guy, is the one, is the one who does who does the right thing in the midst of the the priest who doesn't and the Levite who doesn't, who, who just pass on the other side of the injured person, right? And the other side of the road of, uh, of that injured person, right? As Jesus is teaching that lesson about what it means to be neighborly, the reality that anyone around you can be your neighbor. The question is, are you being a neighbor to them? <clears throat> so, this person was a Samaritan. 10%, one out of 10, came back and gave thanks to Jesus. Frequently, I think, it can be true that in Christian ministry, as you follow Jesus, in whatever areas the Lord has called you to be faithful and serve him, sometimes it's thankless. <laughs> You should do it anyways. <laughs> Jesus healed these ten lepers. One of them came back and gave glory to God and gave them thanks. So Jesus answered, verse 17, and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? <laughs> Love that he's using a foreigner <laughs> as an illustration, right? Because foreigners are outsiders, right? Outsiders to the, to the community, whatever. The attitude of people toward foreigners, no matter what culture, is frequently one of animosity. Jesus uses them as examples of good things teaching us that we ought to reframe our usage and our attitude toward foreigners, toward others who aren't like us, whatever you or I consider to be foreign or different. The reality is it ought to be embraced. And he said to him, arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you whole. Okay. Now, um, one main point I want to make about this, and then I want to go back to the issue of offenses because I want to read um, a couple of things to you. First thing I want to read to you is this. For a long time, I, I really, really, really struggled with what it meant to do God's will. What is God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? I encourage you, if you're wrestling with that idea, to give you some understanding of what it means to live in God's will for you and your life, I encourage you to read through the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's one of the books of the Bible where Paul says very plainly, more than one time, this is the will of God for you. So if your question is, what is the will of God for me? 1 Thessalonians is beautiful because he's just like, this is the will of God for you. He just says it plainly on a couple of occasions. So I want to read to you one of those it's in 1 Thessalonians 5, one of the two. Oh, oh, the first one, just so that you know, so that you're aware, I have to say it. I'm I feel compelled to say it. First one is that the will of God for you is sexual purity. 
right, to flee sexual morality. It is the will of God for you that you learn how to control your body, not with passion of lust. Okay. Okay. So that's definitely God's will for you. If you're ever wondering, what does God want for me? It's very, very simple. <laughs> that's one, one thing he definitely wants for you. Second thing uh, is this uh, among, among um, others that are very clear. Uh, but here's the, before I say it, before we read it in First Thessalonians 5, because our attitude frequently is, does God want me to take this job? Is this God's will for me? Or does God want me to buy this car? Or does he want me to marry this person? Or does he want me to buy this house? We're asking this question saying, is this God's will for me? And I think that's the wrong way to view this entire idea. Okay. Um, you ought to pray and ask God to lead you. He's promised to do that. You ought to seek advice and wisdom from godly people, right? Solomon gave us great wisdom when he said more than one time in the book of Proverbs, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Get advice from other people who follow Jesus, okay? (laughs) Talk to them about it, okay? Ask for their advice. Ask them to pray for you. And then frequently with with those particular decisions, just make the best choice that you feel like you can. Whatever seems most reasonable to you. Okay. The difficulty is what we want to know is whether or not this is God's will for me because we want everything to go smoothly. And we think, I don't know, falsely, we think that if it's quote unquote God's will for me, then when I buy this car, everything will work out fine. We don't think if this car is God's will for me to buy, then I'm going to buy this car and it's going to wreck the next day or it's going to break down you know, a week later or whatever. Sometimes we, we view the situations because we want some assurance. We want some safety. And so we're asking these questions and we're trying to do this, but, but God never promised you that that was his will for you anyways. He never said that my will for you is to buy this car and that means that it's going to work out okay. He never said that to you. But you and I want that to be so true, right? I'm only using that obviously as one example. The same thing can be true about our marriages or about children and pregnancy and, and ver- all sorts of aspects of life and humanity and health. Here's what I know God's will is. That you keep your body, you use your body in ways that are free from sexual morality. I know that it's God's will for you and for me. Here's the other one in 1 Thessalonians 5. That um, that Paul says. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in the Messiah Jesus for you. In everything, give thanks. In some of Paul's lists of immorality, he has several places in Romans 1 and in 1 Corinthians, there's another one. In several of Paul's lists of life practices that are related to immorality and things that are offensive to God, one of the things that Paul lists at times is ungratefulness or unthankfulness, <laughs> being unthankful. So if I ask the question, God, what is your will for me? Can I hear... The, the apostles say, in everything, give thanks. This is the will of God for you.
think that God wants us to have a different perspective about the things that happen in our lives. A perspective that is not like the hopeless perspective of the world around me that that believes that things just happen. Paul would remind us in Romans chapter 8, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called called according to his purpose. If that's true, then I can in everything give thanks, even in the hard things. That's hard when you're you're holding a, a lifeless little baby in your hands. It is hard to give thanks in everything. When you're dealing with emotional fallout from abuse, It's hard to give thanks in everything. But a lot of this has to do with with perspective. With how we're choosing to think about things. I've noticed a habit my children have of using words like never, ever, always, I'm very cognizant of the use of those words in my own life <clears throat> and in my kids. And I realize that what they do is they produce, they're just frequently designed to produce drama, <laughs> to, to overstate something. <laughs> you always do this. You never do this. Oh, 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 I've said it in my, you know, discussions with my wife before. <laughs> you don't ever... That's not true, <laughs> but it bolsters my case in the moment <laughs> to use language like that. It's, it's designed to overemphasize, to, to make something dramatic, to make a mountain out of a molehill. <laughs> <clears throat> in everything, give thanks. The only reason why I bring that up is because I realize that there's a lot, there's a lot of our relationships with each other that could be different based in the way that we choose to think about things and the thoughts that we have and the way that we embrace them. And the, the ones that we choose to continue to entertain and the ones that we choose to purposely think differently about. And so I think that our instruction here, knowing that the will of God for me is that I give thanks in everything, I wonder if I would develop a habit of saying, Lord, this is really hard, this thing I'm going through, but I just want to say thank you. I wonder if even in that moment, in that prayer, even in the difficulty, and I found it to be true in my own struggles, I found it to be true that my in, almost in an instant, like everything changes, like, oh, God is still here. This thing I'm dealing with just just stinks. It's horrible and it's hard and it's painful and I don't like it. But God hasn't forgotten me and I can give him thanks. This is the will of God for you in the Messiah Jesus, Paul reminds us. So I wanted to remind you of that. (laughs) Give thanks to God. If you're asking the question, what's God's will for me? Give thanks in everything. (laughs) Um, I want to read to you um, we're going to finish up that last section really quickly here before we get to it I want to read to you what Paul says in Romans 14 about about offenses Um, this will mostly mostly I want to read it so please give attention to it because 
it doesn't really require a lot of explanation. I'll, I'll explain what I feel like needs to be explained, but I really feel like a lot of Paul's writings are more straightforward than we like to make them. I think that we just want to kind of squeeze out of the difficult ones sometimes. <laughs> but anyway, so in um, in Romans 14, I, I don't know what I'm looking at. First Corinthians 14. Romans 14, it's a pretty short chapter. Paul says this, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. I feel like that's what happens in churches a lot. We like to just dispute over stuff that is just questionable stuff, just doubtful stuff. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Obviously, one of the disputes was related to uh, what was acceptable to eat and what was not acceptable to eat. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. I wish we had that perspective about other Christians. right? Paul's like, listen, you guys are disputing about this tradition thing, or about what, what you're allowed to eat or not allowed to eat. Listen, if that person is a follower of Jesus, they're his servant. And if they're his servant, he's going to make them stand. Like he's just, God will deal with them. <laughs> like you don't have to try and figure out this thing. Don't just don't, you don't have to argue with each other about it, you know, about these doubtful things. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. There's that giving of thanks again. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. For to this end, this is the reason, this is what he was after. To this end, the Messiah died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord. Oh, that means I don't have to be Lord of you. Isn't that super cool? I don't have to be the master over other people. I deal with this with my kids, right? Because I have more than one. And like sometimes one of them wants to be the master over the others. <laughs> like you don't have to be a dad. Just just be, be their friend. <laughs> be their brother. You don't have to be dad. You don't have to be mom. <laughs> you don't have to try and correct them all the time. You know, just... Just help them, encourage them to do what's right, but like, don't try and be their parent, you know. I feel like the Lord is saying that to us, you know. He died for that person so that he could be Lord over them, not you. You don't need to be Lord over them, over that other follower of Jesus. For to this end, the Messiah died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There's a, there's a, a place where God's going to deal with us. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this. Here's where we're getting to the point of the offense, which is this word for stumbling block or setting a trap for someone. Okay. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but here's what we should be doing for each other. Rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. This is the way that we can have an attitude toward each other. Not trying to judge each other about what's these doubtful things that are right or wrong or whatever, these different traditions that we have. We shouldn't rail on each other about that stuff. He's the Lord of us. Jesus died to be the Lord of every one of us. He's going to make us stand if we've trusted him. Don't worry about your brother who's you know, wanting to be a vegetarian because he thinks that honors God more than not. Okay? Don't worry about it. Okay? Just let God deal with him. It's fine. Right? Um, 
But there is something else that you can do for your brother because you and I are our brother's keeper, contrary to what Cain said to the Lord, right? Am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I don't know. You murdered him, so apparently you thought you were Lord over him, right? <laughs> Rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. Oh man, Christian liberty is so wonderful, isn't it? I know and am convinced by the Lord that there is nothing unclean of itself. But, it's a big but. <laughs> but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom our Messiah died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves the Messiah in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may build up another or edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it's evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. This is hard. It's hard for Americans who have grown up trying to be proud of our individual rights, right? Well, I have the right to do this and nobody should limit my rights and I have the right to not wear a mask. Or I have the right to drink this or to eat that. Please don't misunderstand there is nothing mentioned here and nothing in me or my voice that's saying that I think we should have a centralized government <laughs> that has all the authority over us telling us everything we should do. Don't misunderstand me or the scriptures, please. This is a willful, glorious, loving submission of one person to another, not because it's commanded by some centralized government, government of men, rather because it's what it means to walk in love. And it's commanded by the true central government, <laughs> King Jesus. <laughs> uh, his government, by the way, is neither a democracy nor a republic. It is an absolute monarchy. <laughs> Whatever he says goes. <clears throat> and that would be terrifying. It would be terrifying in an absolute monarchy led by us men. But Jesus isn't like us. He's good. Anyhow, do, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. <laughs> Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he doesn't eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. Okay? So, don't give offense to others. <laughs> don't put a cause to stumble in front of other people. There's a lot of stuff I think that we certainly could evaluate under that heading. Things that we, what TV shows do I watch? Is it okay for me to watch this? Maybe. Does me watching it and then telling other people that I've watched it, is it possible that that could cause 
my younger brother or sister to stumble? Maybe. Have I considered it? Or music that we listen to, or I mean, fill in the blank about all of these. These are issues of Christian liberty. We're not talking about um, obvious, defined uh, sin issues that are clear in the scripture, like sexual morality, right? We're not talking about that. Because right? <laughs> it's clear that God wants us to uh, flee from sexual morality, right? Uh, that is certainly the will of God for us, okay? These, the issue that Paul's dealing with is the issue of doubtful things, okay? Anyhow, uh, continuing back, let's finish up today. We have like three minutes, so let's finish. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, keep in mind the, uh, the context of this story. He's speaking to whom now? The Pharisees. When the Pharisees, he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, and he said, the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Another way that that is translated or can be translated is in your midst. And some of our some um, English translations have it that way. The idea is that it's that word of the, the word or the idea of being there with you, right? Being right right there with you, right in your midst. Okay. So um, the kingdom of God, Jesus says, doesn't come with observation, nor will they say, "See here, see there." For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. This reminds me of after the resurrection, Jesus in the beginning of the book of Acts is talking to his disciples, and the first question they ask him is, "Lord, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel?" They're asking the same thing the Pharisees are asking here. When is the kingdom of God coming? You know why they're asking that? Because the prophets had foretold that God was going to come and he was going to reign in Jerusalem. That the son of David is going to reign in Jerusalem and reign over not only Israel, but the nations. Okay? And the nations were going to come and, and offer worship and sacrifice to the God of Israel. Okay? So like there are all these promises here that, uh, that they're looking forward to. And so the Pharisees ask, And so Jesus says this, the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. Jesus' message to Israel was what? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's within reach. Some of them entered in by believing. But as a whole, the nation of Israel rejected the kingdom. And the kingdom was then offered, presented to to the Gentiles. Okay? Okay. Paul picks up that idea in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He makes, lays out this theology of God's wisdom dealing with Israel and with the nations, um, even in Israel's rejection of the Messiah. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is in your midst or uh, within you. It's, it's right there, right here is the idea. Remember what we just read in Romans 14? Paul says what about the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God isn't eating and drinking. It's what? Righteousness joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Well, those are all internal realities, right? It's righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. This is how the kingdom of God works works itself out in the life of the follower of Jesus now. But please don't misunderstand. There is a promised day of revelation, and this is where Jesus is, is going to end this conversation. There is a day when he will return and reign There is a culmination, a fulfillment of these promises. But it is not going to be by you and I electing an all-Christian government and enforcing righteousness with with our laws and then having our Christian armies fight all the nations. It won't be like that. 
because we're all messed up, bro. And we'll kill all of God's people everywhere else, too, because that seems to be what happens sometimes. Jesus is the one who brings his kingdom. <laughs> Let's settle it, settle it at that. Okay. <laughs> but you and I have the privilege of living out, of God's kingdom being at work in the world now through us, through our hands and our feet and our mouths and our eyes and our finances. We have the privilege of, of being utilized in the work of God's kingdom even now. Jesus continues this way, and he says this. Then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. That's Jesus making it clear to his disciples now. Who asked the question to start with? The Pharisees. But now he's talking to his disciples, and he makes it clear to them, The days are going to come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Do you guys believe that after Jesus ascended, the disciples who still were around, that they really longed to see him again? I imagine they just were like, Lord, please come back. (laughs) (laughs) please. (laughs) I imagine they longed for it, right? And Jesus is making it clear here that he's going to be leaving. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Don't go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. This is something that throughout the scriptures, there's this idea that's spoken of as the day of the Lord. It doesn't mean one exact day. Typically, it means, because there are several places where it's used, it means it's a reference to a time period called the Day of the Lord, where God is dealing directly, actively through uh, in, in the world in a particular way. There is a coming Day of the Lord where the Son of Man, the Son of God, will be revealed. And Jesus is saying that you, nobody's going to come and say in a secret place, look, he's right over there, or look, he's right over there, because just like lightning, when lightning flashes over there, everybody over here sees it, right? Like lightning, it's all known everywhere, right? That's the idea here. And so Jesus is using that as in, uh, as a way to illustrate uh, what his day will be like. Verse 25, but first, before that, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. This is absolutely a declaration of coming catastrophic Judgment. I don't know how else to view this. It seems very clear to me. In the first reference that Jesus gives, everybody's going about their merry business, living as if everything's going to be the same forever, and then the flood comes and destroys everyone, except for the eight on the ark. In the second illustration that Jesus gives, in the story of Lot, everybody's going about their day, living like everything's going to go on forever. Human progress is wonderful until judgment comes. And when Lot is pulled out that very day, judgment falls. Okay? Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. Jesus, speaking, his language here, speaks of the immediacy of this idea, of how quickly this will happen. Let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, the idea of turning back, right? She turned back longing for Sodom, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. I don't know exactly what that looks like. (laughs) Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks 
Verse 33, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Jesus' teaching here about future events, this is what I want you to understand about the prophetic writings about future events. If there's not an immediate application for what that means for our lives today, then then in many ways I think it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant to talk about what might happen someday in the future if there's no place for us right now to evaluate our lives and what we're choosing to do now. This is what Jesus brings us to. There is going to be judgment coming. There is the day of the Lord that's coming. And so he's saying, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. So what are you after? Is the thing that dominates all of your life and your decisions simply the preservation of your life? Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. That's not weird. (laughs) Uh, Of course, it certainly isn't weird anymore, uh, right? But um, it wasn't even back then. Many families all slept together. They had one big open room in a house. Everybody slept together in the same sleeping area of the room. It's very common. In fact, still is in in many cultures, in many cultures. what you and I would certainly view as um, um, places overrun with poverty. Um, you imagine that if you can think of, or if you've seen pictures of the shanty towns in uh, India, in some of the communities in India, in the, the lowest caste there, uh, you just have all of these just basically rooms made with trash, and then everybody just lays in one when they're ready to go to sleep, and just what you do. Um, so, uh, but Jesus is um, telling us that in that night there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men, two women will be grinding together. The idea is grinding at a mill together. Also, our euphemisms can make this really weird. <laughs> um, using a mill together, right? Um, grinding at a mill together. One will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Do you get Jesus? He's using this three times. He uses the illustration of two people doing something and of one of them being taken and one left. This is a reference to um, judgment and um, to the day of the Lord. He's speaking of the second coming, really. And they answered and said to him, where, Lord, where are they going to be taken? I think is the idea. Where, Lord? So he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Such a weird illustration. (laughs) Okay, so uh, a body or a dead body, a carcass, right, is where you find what? Vultures. So I know the word is translated eagles here because in England, eagles are vultures and vultures are eagles. Just a language thing. Um, So anyways, uh, so anyways, so it's referring to vultures. (laughs) Okay. Uh, or it used to be that way. They, the language may have updated uh, there too, um, uh, to, to the way we use the word eagles now as well. But anyhow, in America. So he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. <sighs> okay, last thing I want to read. First Thessalonians 4. I'm going to try to just read this and then we'll pray. Uh, well, I said the last thing I want to read, but I also want to read First Corinthians 15. Okay. 
but I do not, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or those believers who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in the Messiah will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Do you get it now? Thus we shall always be with the Lord. At his return, everyone who has trusted him will be together with him, and we will always be with the Lord. Isn't that a good hope? Because he reigns over death, and death terrorizes humanity. Therefore, comfort one another with these words, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians here. So while that day will overtake the rest of the world like a thief in the night, it need not overtake us that way. We know it's coming, so we can be ready now. Um, Same idea Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 15. Now this I say, verse 50, Brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, Where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And that is where we end today. I hope you see the connection between what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Thessalonians of the idea of us being caught, those who are alive and remain being caught up together and of Jesus' statement about two people doing something and one being taken. Do you get that, that idea? Okay, they seem to be connected there. Some have suggested that what's being talking, talking about, what's being spoken of is <laughs> one day, I promise I'll learn how to speak correctly, but what's being spoken of is um, judgment, that one is taken for judgment. And either way, I don't really see a problem with it. Either way, uh, whether one is taken for judgment and one is left for the kingdom, I don't really see an issue with with seeing it either particular way. Uh, But I I do understand that. I like the fact that Paul uses a language that suggests one being taken up to be with the Lord and of Jesus saying wherever the body is, that's where the eagles are gathered together. And of Paul saying when he does that, we'll be always be with the Lord. Wherever the body is, there we are. Okay. And that's a wonderful hope because <laughs> the world's a mess. And we're dying anyways. Even if <laughs> So, uh, Father, we pray for mercy because we need it greatly. We pray that you give us wisdom not to give offense in doubtful things, not to put um, opportunities of stumbling and of, of leading our, our brothers and sisters into sin or into problems, into things that offend their conscience unnecessarily. Give us wisdom in how we can love each other that way and limit our liberty for the sake of love. Help us to love each other. 
And um, I also ask that we would, you would teach us to give thanks to you. Lord, we thank you this morning. In the midst of all of the problems and all of the pain and suffering that we have personally been through or seen and the people around us, still we give you thanks. You have redeemed us from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, and you are making a people for yourself in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. And Lord, we have been called out from the rest of the world to belong to you, and so we give you thanks. Thank you, thank you. And we know it's not because of anything in ourselves. We know it's not because we we obey or we've kept any rules. It's all because of what you've done. And so, Father, we give you thanks. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for the many things that you have given to us that we enjoy, our families and our children, and so many of the other opportunities that we've been given. Lord, we give you thanks. We are rich while many are poor, and it is not because of any goodness in us. Lord, help us to give more, to share more. Please. Help us to be aware that one day Jesus is returning. It's been almost 2,000 years. I don't know when that day is. But I know that it will overtake this world that thinks everything's going to keep going the way it is forever and ever. I know it's going to overtake them and they'll be surprised. But not us. Help us to be aware, to remember To know that a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. Time is not the same to you, my Father. Give us wisdom, please. Pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, you guys, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious with you. The Lord lift up his smile on you and give you peace. It's been weeks coming for us to get through Luke 17. So (laughs) thanks for walking through it with me.